Section 9 of Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5, by Alexander Dumas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Denham. Celebrated Crimes, Volume 5, by Alexander Dumas. Section 9 All this was related so simply, and with such an appearance of good faith, that the curé was quite convinced. And to Monsieur de Lamotte, the plans attributed to his wife were not entirely improbable. Derue had learned indirectly that such a career for Edouard had been actually under consideration. However, though M. de Lamotte's entire ignorance prevented him from making any serious objection, his fears were not entirely at rest, but for the present he appeared satisfied with the explanation. The curé resumed the conversation. "'What you tell us ought to drive away gloomy ideas. Just now, when you were announced, M. de Lamotte was confiding his troubles to me.' I was as concerned as he was, and I could say nothing to help him. Never did visitor arrive more apropos. Well, my friend, what now remains of your vain terrors? What was it you were saying just as Monsieur Derue arrived? Ah, we were discussing dreams. You asked if I believed in them. Monsieur de Lamotte, who had sunk back in his easy chair, and seemed lost in his reflections, started on hearing these words. He raised his head, and looked again at Derou. But the latter had had time to note the impression produced by the curé's remark, and this renewed examination did not disturb him. "'Yes,' said Monsieur de Lamotte, "'I had asked that question.' "'And I was going to answer,' that there are certain secret warnings which can be received by the soul long before they are intelligible to the bodily senses, revelations not understood at first, but which later connect themselves with realities of which they are in some way the precursors. Do you agree with me, Monsieur Derou? I have no opinion on such a subject, and must leave the discussion to more learned people than myself. I do not know whether such apparitions really mean anything or not, and I have not sought to fathom these mysteries, thinking them outside the realm of human intelligence. Nevertheless, said the curé, we are obliged to recognize their existence. Yes, but without either understanding or explaining them, like many other eternal truths, I follow the rule given in the imitation of Jesus Christ. Beware, my son, of considering too curiously the things beyond thine intelligence. And I also submit, and avoid too curious consideration. But has not the soul knowledge of many wondrous things which we can yet neither see nor touch? I repeat, there are things which cannot be denied." Derou listened attentively, continually on his guard, and afraid, 
he knew not why, of becoming entangled in this conversation as in a trap. He carefully watched Monsieur de Lamotte, whose eyes never left him. The curé resumed. Here is an instance which I was bound to accept, seeing it happened to myself. I was then twenty, and my mother lived in the neighbourhood of Tours, whilst I was at the seminary of Montpellier. After several years of separation, I had obtained permission to go and see her. I wrote, telling her of this good news, and I received her answer, full of joy and tenderness. My brother and sister were to be informed it was to be a family meeting, a real festivity, and I started with a light and joyous heart. My impatience was so great that having stopped for supper at a village inn some ten leagues from Tours, I would not wait till next morning for the coach which went that way, but continued the journey on foot, and walked all night. It was a long and difficult road, but happiness redoubled my strength. About an hour after sunrise I saw distinctly the smoke and the village roofs, and I hurried on to surprise my family a little sooner. I never felt more active, more light-hearted and gay. Everything seemed to smile before me and around me. Turning a corner of the hedge, I met a peasant whom I recognised. All at once it seemed as if a veil spread over my sight. All my hopes and joy suddenly vanished. A funereal idea took possession of me, and I said, taking the hand of the man who had not yet spoken, "'My mother is dead. I am convinced my mother is dead.' He hung down his head and answered, she is to be buried this morning. Now whence came this revelation? I had seen no one, spoken to no one. A moment before I had no idea of it. Derues made a gesture of surprise. Monsieur de Lamotte put his hand to his eyes and said to the curé, "'Your presentiments were true. Mine happily are unfounded.' But listen, and tell me if, in the state of anxiety which oppressed me, I had not good reason for alarm and for fearing some fatal misfortune. His eyes again sought Derues. Towards the middle of last night, I at length fell asleep, but interrupted every moment this sleep was more a fatigue than a rest. I seemed to hear confused noises all round me. I saw brilliant lights which dazzled me, and then sank back into silence and darkness. Sometimes I heard someone weeping near my bed. Again plaintive voices called to me out of the darkness. I stretched out my arms, but nothing met them. I fought with phantoms. At length a cold hand grasped mine, and led me rapidly forward. Under a dark and damp vault a woman lay on the ground, bleeding inanimate. It was my wife. At the same moment a groan made me look round, and I beheld a man striking my son with a dagger. I cried out and awoke, bathed in cold perspiration, panting under this terrible vision. I was obliged to get up, walk about, and speak aloud in order to convince myself it was only a dream. 
I tried to go to sleep again, but the same vision still pursued me. I saw always the same man armed with two daggers, streaming with blood. I heard always the cries of his two victims. When day came I felt utterly broken, worn out. And this morning you, my father, could see by my despondency what an impression this awful night had made upon me. During this recital, Derues' calmness never gave way for a single moment, and the most skilful physiognomist could only have discovered an expression of incredulous curiosity on his countenance. "'Monsieur le curé's story,' said he, "'impressed me much. Yours only brings back my uncertainty. It is less possible than ever to deliver any opinion on this serious question of dreams,' since the second instance contradicts the first. "'It is true,' answered the curé. "'No possible conclusion can be drawn from two facts which contradict each other, and the best thing we can do is to choose a less dismal subject of conversation.' "'Monsieur de Roux, asked Monsieur de Lamotte, "'if you are not too tired with your journey, shall we go and look at the last improvements I have made?' It is now your affair to decide upon them, since I shall shortly be only your guest here, just as I have been yours for long enough, and I trust you will often give me the opportunity of exercising hospitality in my turn. But you are ill. The day is cold and damp. If you do not care to go out, do not let me disturb you. Had you not better stay by the fire with Monsieur le Curé? For me, heaven be thanked, I require no assistance. I will look round the park and come back presently to tell you what I think. Besides, we shall have plenty of time to talk about it. With your permission, I should like to stay two or three days. I shall be pleased if you will do so. Duroux went out, sufficiently uneasy in his mind, both on account of his reception of Monsieur de Lamotte's fears and of the manner in which the latter had watched him during the conversation. He walked quickly up and down the park. "'I have been foolish, perhaps. I have lost twelve or fifteen days, and delayed stupidly from fear of not foreseeing everything. But then how was I to imagine that this simple, easily deceived man would all at once become suspicious?' What a strange dream! If I had not been on my guard, I might have been disconcerted. Come, come, I must try to disperse these ideas and give him something else to think about. He stopped, and after a few minutes consideration turned back towards the house. As soon as he had left the room, Monsieur de Lamotte had bent over towards the curé, and had said— he did not show any emotion, did he? None whatsoever. He did not start when I spoke of the man armed with those two daggers. No, but put aside these ideas. You must see they are mistaken. I did not tell you everything, my father. This murderer whom I saw in my dream was Derouz himself. I know as well as you that it must be a delusion. I saw as well as you did that he remained quite calm. But in spite of myself, this terrible dream haunts me. 
There, do not listen to me. Do not let me talk about it. It only makes me blush for myself. Whilst Derues remained at buisson Suef, Monsieur de Lamotte received several letters from his wife, some from Paris, some from Versailles. She remarked that her son and herself were perfectly well. The writing was so well imitated that no one could doubt their genuineness. However, Monsieur de Lamotte's suspicions continually increased, and he ended by making the curé share his fears. He also refused to go with Derues to Paris, in spite of the latter's entreaties. Derues, alarmed at the coldness shown him, left Buisson Suef, saying that he intended to take possession about the middle of spring. Monsieur de Lamotte was, in spite of himself, still detained by ill health, but a new and inexplicable circumstance made him resolve to go to Paris and endeavour to clear up the mystery which appeared to surround his wife and son. He received an unsigned letter in unknown handwriting, and in which Madame de Lamotte's reputation was attacked with a kind of would-be reticence, which hinted that she was an unfaithful wife, and that in this lay the cause of her long absence. Her husband did not believe this anonymous denunciation, but the fate of the two beings dearest to him seemed shrouded in so much obscurity that he could delay no longer, and started for Paris. His resolution not to accompany Derues had saved his life. The latter could not carry out his culminating crime at buisson Suef. It was only in Paris that his victims would disappear without his being called to account. Obliged to leave hold of his prey, he endeavoured to bewilder him in a labyrinth where all trace of truth might be lost. Already, as he had arranged beforehand, he had called calumny to his help and prepared the audacious lie which was to vindicate himself should an accusation fall upon his head. He had hoped that Monsieur de Lamotte would fall defenceless into his hands, but now a careful examination of his position, showing the impossibility of avoiding an explanation had become inevitable, made him change all his plans, and compelled him to devise an infernal plot so skilfully laid that it bid fair to defeat all human sagacity. Monsieur de Lamotte arrived in Paris early in March. Chance decided that he should lodge in the Rue de la Mortellerie, in a house not far from the one where his wife's body lay buried. He went to see Derue, hoping to surprise him, and determined to make him speak, but found he was not at home. Madame de Roux, whether acting with the discretion of an accomplice, or really ignorant of her husband's proceedings, could not say where he was likely to be found. She said that he told her nothing about his actions, and that Monsieur de Lamotte must have observed during their stay at Buisson, which was true, that she never questioned him, but obeyed his wishes in everything, and that he had now gone away without saying where he was going. She acknowledged that Madame de Lamotte had lodged with them for six weeks, and that she knew that the lady had been at Versailles, 
but since then she had heard nothing. All Monsieur de Lamotte's questions, his entreaties, prayers, or threats, obtained no other answer. He went to the lawyer in the Rue de Pau, to the schoolmaster, and found the same uncertainty, the same ignorance. His wife and son had gone to Versailles. There the clue ended which ought to guide his investigations. He went to this town. No one could give him any information. The very name of Lamotte was unknown. He returned to Paris, questioned and examined the people of the quarter, the proprietor of the Hôtel de France, where his wife had stayed on her former visit. At length, wearied with useless efforts, he implored help from justice. Then his complaints ceased. He was advised to maintain a prudent silence, and to await Derou's return. The latter thoroughly understood that having failed to dissipate M. de Lamotte's fears, there was no longer an instant to lose, and that the pretended private contract of February 12th could not of itself prove the existence of Madame de Lamotte. This is how he employed the time spent by the unhappy husband in fruitless investigation. On March 12th, a woman, her face hidden in the hood of her cloak, or Thérèse, as it was then called, appeared in the office of Maître N., a notary at Lyon. She gave her name as Marie-Françoise Perrier, wife of Monsieur Saint-Faust de Lamotte, but separated as to goods and estate from him. She caused a deed to be drawn up, authorising her husband to receive the arrears of thirty thousand livres remaining from the price of the estate of Buisson-Sueff, situated near Villeneuve-le-Roi-Lessence. The deed was drawn up and signed by Madame de Lamotte, by the notary, and one of his colleagues. This woman was de Roux. If we remember that he only arrived at Buisson February 28th, and remained there for some days, it becomes difficult to understand how, at that period, so long a journey as that from Paris to Lyon could have been accomplished with such rapidity. Fear must have given him wings. We will now explain what Yussi intended to make of it, and what fable, a masterpiece of cunning and of lies, he had invented. On his arrival in Paris, he found a summons to appear before the magistrate of police. He expected this, and appeared quite tranquil, ready to answer any questions. Monsieur de Lamotte was present. It was a formal examination, and the magistrate first asked why he had left Paris. Monsieur, replied de Roux, I have nothing to hide, and none of my actions need fear the daylight, but before replying I should like to understand my position. As a domiciled citizen I have a right to require this. Will you kindly inform me why I have been summoned to appear before you, whether on account of anything personal to myself, or simply to give information as to something which may be within my knowledge? You are acquainted with this gentleman and cannot therefore be ignorant of the cause of the present inquiry. I am, nevertheless, 
quite in ignorance of it. "'Be good enough to answer my question. Why did you leave Paris, and where have you been?' "'I was absent for business reasons. What business?' "'I shall say no more. Take care, you have incurred serious suspicions, and silence will not tend to clear you.' Derouge hung down his head with an air of resignation, and M. de Lamotte, seeing in this attitude a silent confession of crime, exclaimed, "'Wretched man! What have you done with my wife and son?' "'Your son,' said Derouge, slowly and with peculiar emphasis. He again cast down his eyes. The magistrate conducting the inquiry was struck by the expression of de Roux's countenance, and by this half-answer, which appeared to hide a mystery, and to aim at diverting attention by offering a bait to curiosity. He might have stopped de Roux at the moment when he sought to plunge into a tortuous argument, and compelled him to answer with the same clearness and decision which distinguished M. de Lamotte's question. But he reflected that the latter's inquiries, unforeseen, hasty, and passionate, were perhaps more likely to disconcert a prepared defence than cooler and more skilful tactics. He therefore changed his plans, contenting himself for the moment with the part of an observer only, and watching a duel between two fairly matched antagonists. "'I require you to tell me what has become of them,' repeated Monsieur de Lamotte. "'I have been to Versailles. You assured me they were there.' "'And I told you the truth, monsieur.' No one has seen them, no one knows them, every trace is lost. Your Honour, this man must be compelled to answer, he must say what has become of my wife and son. I excuse your anxiety. I understand your trouble, but why appeal to me? Why am I supposed to know what may have happened to them? Because I confided them to your care. As a friend, yes, I agree. Yes, it is quite true that last December I received a letter from you informing me of the impending arrival of your wife and son. I received them in my own house, and showed them the same hospitality which I had received from you. I saw them both, your son often, your wife every day, until the day she left me to go to Versailles. Yes, I also took Edouard to his mother, who was negotiating an appointment for him. I have already told you all this, and I repeat it because it is the truth. You believed me then, why do you not believe me now? Why has what I say become strange and incredible? If your wife and your son have disappeared, am I responsible? Did you transmit your authority to me? And now, in what manner are you thus calling me to account? Is it to the friend who might have pitied, who might have aided your search, that you thus address yourself? Have you come to confide in me, to ask for advice, for consolation? No, you accuse me. Very well. Then I refuse to speak, because, having no proofs, you yet accuse an honest man, because your fears, whether real or imaginary, do not excuse you for casting I know not what odious suspicions on a blameless reputation, because I have the right to be offended. Monsieur, he continued, turning to the magistrate, 
I believe you will appreciate my moderation and will allow me to retire. If charges are brought against me, I am quite ready to meet them and to show what they are really worth. I shall remain in Paris. I have now no business which requires my presence elsewhere. He emphasized these last words, evidently intending to draw attention to them. It did not escape the magistrate, who inquired, "'What do you mean by that?' "'Nothing beyond my words, Your Honour. Have I your permission to retire?' "'No, remain. You are pretending not to understand.' "'I do not understand these insinuations so covertly made.' Monsieur de Lamotte rose, exclaiming, "'Insinuations! What more can I say to compel you to answer? My wife and son have disappeared. It is untrue that, as you pretend they have been at Versailles, you deceived me at Buisson-Sueff, just as you are deceiving me now, as you are endeavouring to deceive justice by inventing fresh lies. Where are they? What has become of them?' I am tormented by all the fears possible to a husband and father. I imagine all the most terrible misfortunes, and I accuse you to your face of having caused their death. Is this sufficient, or do you still accuse me of covert insinuations? Derouge turned to the magistrate. Is this charge enough to place me in the position of a criminal if I do not give a satisfactory explanation? Certainly, you should have thought of that sooner. Then, he continued, addressing Monsieur de Lamotte, I understand you persist in this odious accusation. I certainly persist in it. You have forgotten our friendship? broken all bonds between us i am in your eyes only a miserable assassin you consider my silence as guilty you will ruin me if i do not speak it is true there is still time for reflection consider what you are doing i will forget your insults and your anger your trouble is great enough without my reproaches being added to it but you desire that i should speak you desire it absolutely? I do desire it. Very well, then. It shall be as you wish. Derouge surveyed Monsieur de Lamotte with a look which seemed to say, I pity you. He then added, with a sigh, I am now ready to answer. Your Honour, will you have the kindness to resume my examination? End of section 9 Reading by Tom Denham